into the seminary, I actually, in high school and college, taught catechism. And I remember one time when all the different grades had to gather together to watch a video. And this would have been in the late 80s, early 90s. And so the video, I remember, is from the 70s. Some questionable things happening in the 70s theologically. Uh, and this video was really weird. It was basically these three sort of numinous spheres. And I guess they were supposed to symbolize the Trinity. And one of them goes down and then basically appears as, as a man who's basically wearing kind of a, a shiny Spider-Man suit. And he's red, I believe, and there are other people walking around with other weird suits, like, you know, it's like a bodysuit, it's like a white suit. So obviously this is the incarnation, and he's walking around and doing everything, and then for whatever reason, the, the people in the other suits, they were in black suits, decide to kill the person in the white suit, the red suit, which of course is the crucifixion, and then all of a sudden he dies and he comes back as a, as a person, but in a white suit, obviously the resurrection, and then they have him sort of ascend up, and then the last scene is back having the three numinous spheres. So I remember having to go back to the classroom and discuss this. And I said, you know, uh, young people, sorry to tell you, you just watched some heresy. And they, of course, didn't get it. But what's the problem? Everything is weird. But the problem is, is when the guy in the white bodysuit ascends up, he keeps his bodysuit. He would be there with two other numinous spheres if you're going to pull it across, which means that when Christ ascended into heaven in his resurrected body, he didn't shed his body and return back to the pure spirit as the second person of the Trinity. The second person of the Trinity has a human body and a human soul resurrected. This is what we're celebrating today, the ascension of Jesus into heaven. So Christ comes in his resurrected, perfected body. He can't suffer anymore. He, he doesn't need to eat. He, he's perfected. He will never die. It's eternal. He is the first fruits of what we are hoping to share in, but he, he passes from the, the purely temporal realm into eternity. Into eternity. A, a sign of what we hope to share in one day. And this is sort of what I want to talk about. The, the theological and I guess maybe social, potentially political significance for Christians who believe that Jesus still has his resurrected body, brought it into heaven, which means for us that the body is important. And this is not some sort of a Manichaean fantasy. Manichaeism is one of the early heresies that basically said the body and created reality is bad. We need to shed that. It's not what Christians believe. And the ascension is proof of that. We have a body. We're body and soul. We are our bodies in a certain sense. So what significance does the ascension have for Christians? Christians who happen to be Americans. Christians who happen to live in the world that we live in today. What importance does it have? Because if we believe in the importance of the body that Christ has his body in heaven, and we will too, it's going to have some impact on how we see the world and how we live and interact in the world. The first is this. I'm reading an interesting book now on basically bioethics. 
and the, 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 the author promotes this theory that today, in sort of our American society, our, our public bioethical policy is based on a flawed anthropology. Anthropology is how we see ourselves as humans, which basically he traces it back to say that for us as Americans, and particularly for politicians and academics, humans, the body doesn't matter. We are nothing more than disembodied wills. Our ability to choose, our ability to impose our will on the world. This is how we see the human person as sort of a political entity. Not as an embodied reality, but a disembodied will. And that what we want, when we want it, we ought to be able to have it. That our body is an object to be manipulated. Nature is an object to be manipulated. And so if we are a disembodied will, that means that, as I've talked about before, freedom becomes autonomy. To do what we want, when we want, unhindered by our body. And it is both for people on the left and for people on the right. Who want what they want, when they want, and they do not want anyone, whether it be the church or the government, telling them how to do it. It belies a flawed anthropology. We have a body. We are not just disembodied will. We, we do choose, we are free, but we have limitations within our body. We choose as embodied creatures. And so his argument is that the law should respect that, particularly when it comes to recognizing the fact that the body is limited, weak, vulnerable, particularly when you are a child, particularly when you are sick, in particular when you're elderly, that our public policy should be guided by that. This is something that Christians should adhere to. The second thing, though, that we can look at, and I've talked about this before, and I'm going to drill this point home. Christ entered into heaven not just with his human body, but with his male-sexed body. Biological. XY chromosome. Male gametes. At every core of his chromosomes and cell, Jesus was a male. What does it mean? Why is it important? It's because in the incarnation, it wasn't the three numinous spheres sitting around saying, all right, we're going to send the sun down, but let's take a coin flip to see if he's going to be male or female. No, it was a very deliberate decision. And what was the purpose of that deliberate decision? Christ became a male embodied male not because well he lived in a patriarchal society and all that kind of stuff no it had a revelatory significance christ in a male body was able to in a very real way sacramentalize and make present the father you have seen me you've seen the father the generative principle in the world all right he of course christ had maternal qualities he, he, he wanted to gather Jerusalem to him like a mother wants to gather the hen, the, the hen wants to gather the children. But does it mean that he was a woman? It means that male and female can have revelatory significance. And so particularly when Jesus then describes himself as the bridegroom, the church is the bride. If we eradicate sexual difference, or we say that it really doesn't matter, or, oh, our disembodied will matters, and whatever I choose to be is what I am, then all of a sudden it all falls apart. The incarnation falls apart. The whole spousal analogy falls apart. And then why would Christ enter into heaven with a male body? Could be 
shedding his body or at least become an androgynous body. But it's not what we believe. His entering into heaven with a sexed male biological body means sexual difference means something. And it's crucial and it's not something we can disregard. And the third thing is probably a little bit more difficult to explain. But it's something I talked a little bit about at <clears throat> Divine Mercy. When Jesus entered into heaven, he entered with his glorified, perfected body. And he was not going to die again. Light shine, could shine through it. He could appear with different things. He could make himself not uh, recognizable to others. But he still went into heaven with his wounds. It's interesting. And I've been reflecting a lot about that. Why does Christ in his resurrected body still have his wounds? You can call them scars. You can call them wounds. What is the meaning of that? What does it tell us? And plenty of saints have written about it and plenty of theologians. But I'm going to offer the, the, the message that Christ maintains and keeps his wounds. Yes, so that we could put our finger in it and, and, and have an act of faith. But more to show that being human means being vulnerable. Vulnus means wound in Latin. That we are vulnerable creatures. We are not by nature immortal. We're vulnerable. We're able to be able to be hurt physically, emotionally, mentally, psychologically, spiritually. Christ is the ultimate example of vulnerability. He showed love to his people, but they killed him. And we are supposed to imitate Christ by showing that same vulnerability. It doesn't mean that we go and we pick fights or, or we don't guard certain parts of our hearts that need to be guarded. But it also means that we don't put up so many walls that no one can ever get in and we can't love other people. Love means being vulnerable. And sometimes in our bodies we are going to get hurt. Hurt in such a sense that one day also we're going to die. And I think that's the real thing in a public policy sense that we're probably going to see in the next 25 years. We've overcome the body. We've overcome sexual difference. Now we're going to honor overcome death. That's ultimately what the secular world wants to overcome. Trying to overcome death, overcome sickness, overcome vulnerability. Maybe through this movement called transhumanism, we'll see how that, that bears out, or melding humans with computers, whatever that looks like. But you're not going to overcome death. That's the ultimate limit. You're not going to overcome vulnerability because it is through our own woundedness, the scars that we have, we're going to bring those to heaven too. And they will be glorified. What that will look like, I don't know. I think it's Augustine who talks about that, that we will have our own scars, our own wounds that we bring into heaven. Because it's those wounds that, if offered properly, bring us to salvation, bring us redemption. Christ went into heaven with his glorified body with his wounds. It teaches us a great lesson about our own need for vulnerability and love. In conclusion, uh, I, for those of you who are grad mass, you remember I talked about the two most important words or phrases uh, from this French philosopher. Thank you and here I am. Thank you and here I am. And how they sort of mark out our life. We thank God for our existence and here I am. Lord, I'm ready. Take me when it's time to go. I'm your servant. But I think there's also a revelation. I was having a discussion about this recently that applies to the body. Thank you, yes, for the gift of the body. We tend to want to be disembodied, shed our bodies. We're ashamed of our bodies. No, thank you, Lord, for the body that you've given me. 
maybe it's not exactly what I would have made myself, but this is what I have. You can't get rid of it. Instead of hating ourselves and who we're created, let's be thankful for it. But also, here I am means that we have a certain placeness. I'm thinking about that a lot. Here I am, right now, in this moment. I'm in this place, in this body. I am present to what is around me. I'm not in some cyber reality. I'm not somebody where else. I am here, and I can love and affect the people around me. Rather than worrying about problems that there's nothing I can do about. This is the gift of these two words. Yes, for the beginning of our life and for the end, but right here for the present moment. We have been given the gift of the body, and we thank the Lord for that as we celebrate the ascension of Christ into heaven. Most importantly, saying, Lord, I one day want to be with you, but right now, here I am. Send the Spirit, send me out, and use me as you will. Amen.